0: Welcome to the Critique Journal Club for July 2015. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we discuss the critical care evidence that caught our eye in the last month. It was a relatively quiet month in the world of randomised controlled trials and intensive care medicine, but still there's a few things worth talking about. So let's start with the Therapeutic Hypothermia in Deceased Organ Donors and Kidney Graft Function published in the New England Journal of Medicine this month. Delayed graft function, defined as requirement for dialysis in the recipient within seven days of transplant, is reported in up to 50% of kidney transplant recipients from brain-dead donors. This prospective trial randomly assigned 370 organ donors to one of two targeted temperature ranges, and they were 34 to 35 degrees Celsius, which was hypothermia, or 36.5 to 37.5 degrees Celsius, normothermia. Temperature protocols were initiated after authorization was obtained for the organ to be donated and ended when organ donors left the intensive care unit for organ recovery in the operating room. The study was terminated early on the recommendation of an independent data and safety monitoring board after the interim analysis showed efficacy of hypothermia. So at baseline the groups were well matched other than the hypothermia group had a significantly higher GFR prior to transfer to the operating room. So that is at the end of the temperature protocol. And the primary outcome which was delayed graft function in the kidney recipients in the hypothermia group that occurred in 79 or 28%. Versus normothermia group 112 or 39%, odds ratio of 0.62, 95%, confidence intervals 0.43 to 0.92, p-value of 0.02. So that is, there was less delayed graft function and lower odds of delayed graft function in the hypothermia group. Secondary outcomes included proportion of recipients of two kidneys. That did not differ. There was a lower delayed graft function in expanded criteria donors with the hypothermia group and the overall number of organs transplanted from each donor and the rates of organs transplanted were similar. So in summary this prospective RCT showed that donors with targeted temperature of 34 to 35 degrees Celsius had a statistically and clinically significant improvement in recipient renal transplant function compared to 36.5 to 37.5 degrees Celsius or normothermia. This effect was most pronounced in the highest risk donors, that is those with expanded criteria, and it is plausible that hypothermia results in a reduced ischemia perfusion injury. So this seems to be a well-designed, well-conducted study. It has resulted in a plausible and significant effect. And it will be really interesting to see if this leads to a debate about changing how we manage organ donors' temperature from when they're authorised for donation to when they leave for theatre if we manage that ethical debate as well, and finally, if it results in a change in practice. Great study. The second study, again looking at kidneys, but in a different population, this is the intravenous amino acid therapy for kidney function in critically ill patients, A randomized controlled trial published in Intensive Care Medicine. So this Phase two RCT investigated whether delivery of IV amino acid supplement preserved kidney function in critically ill adults. The rationale is interesting. So the protective effect of protein load on renal function due to an increase in renal blood flow as a consequence of afferent arteriolar dilatation is described. This was first described in 1973, where a paper demonstrated a short-term nephroprotective effect in critically ill patients following the administration of amino acids, as did a smaller paper in 2007. Finally, a subgroup of 242 patients in a larger nutrition study who were randomized to higher daily protein were significantly less likely to require renal replacement therapy. So that's all hypothesis generating and led to this study in which 474 adult patients from 16 Australian and New Zealand ICUs were randomised within the first two days of ICU and if they're expected to stay for two more days, two L-amino acid, which is synthamin-17, or what in Australia we would a fairly routine TPN, versus placebo, to a maximum total protein intake of 2 grams per kilo per day, until ICU discharge. So they report that the baseline matches were pretty good except for amino acid group had a higher Apache 2 score. There were significant differences in protein intake between the groups, so there was a treatment effect or the treatment was delivered. The primary outcome, duration of renal dysfunction, was 0.99 days per 10 ICU days versus 1.2 days of renal dysfunction per 10 ICU days. Both raw and adjusted analysis revealed no difference. Risk ratio of 1.07, 95% confidence intervals, 0.69 to 1.64. In the secondary outcomes, there were no differences in pre-specified outcomes, that is, renal replacement therapy, although amino acids resulted in improved EGFR and increased urine output. Tertiary outcomes, no difference except a shorter duration of mechanical ventilation in the amino acid group. So the authors conclude that IV amino acid supplementation did not alter the primary outcome, duration of renal dysfunction. Now it was measured in an interesting way which was days per 10 ICU days and it's hard for clinicians, at least for me, to make that a clinically significant outcome. However it is what it is. They did demonstrate interesting physiological effects on renal function with amino acid. That is increased GFR, increased urine output and if you draw a long bow the effect on shortened duration of mechanical ventilation is a possible interesting outcome as well. And perhaps these will require further investigation. But for now it doesn't appear we'll all be giving intravenous amino acids to resolve renal dysfunction. Okay, the next trial is the AVERT trial. So this isn't an ICU trial, this is a stroke trial, but it has some interest to us. So the efficacy and safety of very early mobilization within 24 hours of stroke onset. So this parallel group single blind randomized controlled trial conducted in 56 acute stroke units in five countries randomly assigned 2,104 patients with ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke to standard care or very early mobilization plus standard care. They report that the intervention was delivered so 92% of the early mobilisation group were mobilised in the first 24 hours compared to 59% were mobilised in the first 24 hours in the standard care group. That still seems pretty high to me. The primary outcome, which was a favourable outcome three months after stroke and that was defined as a modified Rankin scale score of 0 to 2 So that was reported as fewer patients in the early mobilisation group had a favourable outcome versus the standard group. So that was 46% versus 50%, odds ratio 0.73, 95% confidence intervals 0.59 to 0.9, and p-value 0.004. The mortality rate was 8% for early versus 7% for standard, odds ratios 1.34 Point, uh, 1.34 and non fatal serious adverse event rate was similar, 19 versus 20%. So, although early mobilization is recommended in 22 of 30 international stroke guidelines, it doesn't appear to achieve the intended reduced risk of post stroke complications. Very early mobilisation was associated with a decreased likelihood of being disability-free at three months. The control group in this study was certainly mobilised early, but less frequently and at a lower intensity. So perhaps, like most interventions, there is a U-shaped dose-effect curve for mobilisation and early mobilisation. And perhaps this is something we should think about as we move into the world of early mobilisation after critical illness. Okay, the next study, the very elderly admitted to ICU, a quality finish in critical care medicine. This is from the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group and the Canadian Researchers at the End of Life Network. So, as we know, end-of-life care, particularly in the elderly, has become an issue that has grabbed the attention of the Western world at all levels of society. Why? We know our elderly patients often prefer quality of life over longevity and are reluctant to accept life-sustaining therapy if it is not going to achieve this. Yet, over 70% of seriously ill-hospitalised patients don't discuss these preferences with health care providers, and life sustaining therapy is provided to patients during their final months, even when they want comfort care. Finally, life sustaining therapies, like ICU, may worsen survival and quality of life in the very elderly. This prospective, observational study describes the treatments and outcomes of care of 1,671 patients over 80 years of age admitted to 24 Canadian ICUs between September 2009 and February 2013. They defined prolonged dying arbitrarily as an ICU length of stay greater than seven days and death in hospital. And they report Treatment limitations 18% had pre ICU treatment limitations documented. Frail patients were more likely to have treatment limitations. And there was a lot of information about different care received, including despite family members' stated preferences for comfort measures only, that 84% of patients received life sustaining treatments. Overall, ICU length of stay was 4 days, hospital length of stay was 17 days, 85% received mechanical ventilation, vasopressors or dialysis. The ICU mortality was 22%, hospital 35%, 30% had an ICU length of stay greater than seven days, 21% received life-sustaining interventions for at least seven days, 32% were frail, that was a CSF greater than or equal to five. Non-survivors, the median time for an ICU admission to death was 10 days and 49% of non-survivors died while receiving mechanical ventilation, vasopressors or dialysis. Finally survivors had a median ICU length of stay of four days. So overall a third of very elderly patients admitted to ICU die in hospital with long length of stay and receiving interventions. Mortality rates are higher in frailer patients In non-survivors, previously documented advanced directives and prior frailty had minimal to no impact on limiting the use of life-sustaining treatment or shortening the time from ICU admission to death. One quarter of family members of these very elderly patients preferred comfort measures, yet almost all of them received life-sustaining treatments in the ICU and the time from ICU admission to death was 12 days. The authors go on to discuss why advanced care directives don't seem to influence care provided. They say advanced care planning, which includes reflections, values, clarifications and conversations with others that prepare the patient and family for in-the-moment decision-making – are more likely to be clinically useful than instructional directives. Given that patients of families that were unsure of their treatment preferences had the longest dying experience, a process that helps families clarify values early in the course of stay has potential for both improving quality end of life care and significantly reducing wasted healthcare resources is a time that we learn to listen to our patients and their families. Finally in critical care medicine from the ANZIC CTG Pediatric Study Group we have the Hypothermia for Traumatic Brain Injury in Children a Phase two RCT so TBI in childhood is a major public health problem with profound long-term effects on individuals families, caregivers and health systems. Therapeutic hypothermia in pediatric TBI has strong rationale, but high quality trials have failed to demonstrate benefit. The authors of this phase two trial hypothesized this may be due to a number of factors. That is, it wasn't started early enough or continued for long enough. The hypothesis of this trial, the HITBIC pilot trial, was that therapeutic hypothermia begun early Continued for at least 72 hours, and then, with the rate of rewarming guided by ICP and CPP, will improve outcome in children with severe TBI. The objective of this pilot study was to assess the feasibility of a phase 3 RCT and test the protocol, including adherence, safety, and outcomes. The design it was a multi-center prospective RCT. The dates, November 2006 to May 2010. Patients, they enrolled 55 of 764 children screened, aged 1 to 15, with severe TBI, SGCS less than 9, within 6 hours of injury. The standard care, goals of an ICP less than 20, CPP was age-adjusted, uh, routine neutral head position, 30 degrees head up, narcotic benzo infusion, isotonic crystalloid as is maintenance and bolus as needed, uh, insulin, hypotonic fluid as needed, phenytoin. If raised intracranial pressure occurred, they had a stepwise progression through sedation, analgesia, CSF drainage, hypertonic saline or mannitol. Um, The next step was decompressive craniectomy, mild hypercarbia, barbiturates, lumbar CSF drainage and hypothermia if all else failed. So that's what everyone got. In the control arm the temperature was 36 to 37 degrees. In the intervention arm or the early therapeutic hypothermia arm it was 32 to 33 degrees and that was achieved with iced IV fluid, surface ice, cooling blanket, maintained for a minimum of 72 hours and then re-warmed at half a degree Celsius per hour if the physiology was controlled. So at baseline the characteristics were similar, mean age of 9.5 years Um, The primary outcome, there was no difference in multiple primary outcomes. The paediatric cerebral performance category 12 months after injury dichotomized to good 1 to 3 or poor 4 to 6. The poor outcome was 17% in the TH group versus 12% in the normothermia group. There was no difference in protocol violations, major adverse events. Secondary outcomes the median time from injury to target temperature was 9.3 hours in the TH group and the TH group had an associated decrease in heart rate and ICP of 1.8 of mercury, and it was maintained for a median of 93.5 hours. So they found that the study recruited 7.2% of eligible patients and the overall poor outcome rate was 14% and mortality 8% and no benefit or harm. As a pilot, it was not designed to detect benefit. However, the similar outcomes mean even if the poor outcome rate is 25 to 35% and an RCT is looking for an absolute reduction of 10%, then at least 500 to 700 children will be required. If randomization rates are 7 to 15%, then 3,000 to 10,000 children might need to be screened. And this is just not feasible with current trial design. So we're left with a pilot study that didn't show a great deal of benefit and an impression that doing a larger study isn't really feasible. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club for July 2015. Come to the website and have a look around. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thank you.